What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and pop culture podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. This is an episode, I say this all the time, and it's always true when I say it, but this one in particular has been an episode I've wanted to tackle, and it was always a matter of finding the right time, the right place, the right context. I know, Laurel, you weren't necessarily so excited about doing this particular episode. One, because the document that we'll be investigating was not a movie you had seen in its heyday, so you had no connection to it. But to me, I was just a young lad, a teenager, really, just starting, like a preteen, early teenager. Just a wee Derek. Just a wee Derek, and I was doing things like playing Dungeons and Dragons, and I loved Star Wars. And along came this movie that, for some reason, I have no idea how I I saw so many hard-rated R movies when I was young, but I saw this movie in the theater, so my parents had to have taken me to it, and man, this movie was a hard R. And this movie was one of those that radically changed me. This was a movie I was so affected by that it is part of the long process of how I came to love history. And this movie is one of those few inflection moments that made me more interested in history because I saw this movie. And this is, of course, the movie came out in, what, 97? 95. 95. So 1995, the best picture the best director, the phenomenal, the smash hit Braveheart. Yeah. So I saw another big movie in theaters that year that was a big phenomenon, but that was Toy Story because I was five years old. So there was no way in hell my parents were taking me to see Braveheart. But somehow, uh, just like last week with Jaws, this is another movie that just slipped through my fingers and I never saw until now. But if you recall, it was me who suggested that we do Braveheart this week. And when I did, I listeners, the face, the like look of pure and unbridled glee that danced across Derek's face, he like almost burst out into a jig. He was so happy that I suggested it. And I was like, well, I guess we're doing that. 
Um, so uh, I'm excited. It was really fun to watch Braveheart for the first time, especially to watch it with you, Derek, because uh, it's not a period of history that I have the most familiarity with. Actually, that period I'm fairly familiar with, but not in Scotland. So this was a new kind of area for me, and having an eye like yours, a historical eye like yours, was really great as a companion piece to watching this very interesting take on medieval history. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so much to talk about here in Braveheart. There's so much that I want to say. I've been prepared to do a Braveheart episode for a very long time. There are always a few caveats, obviously spoilers. We're going to spoil Braveheart, um, but you're used to that, Midnight Myth listeners. Um, I'm not a expert on this particular period of history, but this movie inspired me to want to learn more about medieval history on a broader sense. And I have since learned a lot of medieval history, though not my area of expertise. So forgive us if, if we have any historical misunderstandings while we relate the story of Braveheart to you. And I, I just, I adore this movie. I adored it when I've seen it. I have adored it since I've rewatched it. And there's a lot to talk about. Not all of it is pretty. Obviously, Mel Gibson has become a bit of a problematic human being in the public eye. He has said and done some things that are pretty despicable. And he has done some things to people that are pretty despicable. Um, so, you know, forgive us for tackling Mel Gibson, who, you know, may be a racist, anti-Semite, sexist. Yeah, and domestic abuser. And domestic and, abuser. So, yeah. like, he's, he sucks. So we're not endorsing Mel Gibson's personal life by uh, talking about it. But he did make this phenomenal movie. And to that, I give him one little little dab of gratitude. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's worth looking back at these things because it gets so close to the heart of our mission, which is to understand history, mythology, and philosophy through pop culture, movies, and TV. And to do that, we have to we have to go back to sources like Braveheart, uh, and we have to acknowledge the really troubled history of the people behind it as well. So thank you for bringing that up. Mel Gibson sucks, um, but this movie is worth a look. Yeah, definitely. I mean, honestly, I don't know the truth to all the allegations out there at Mel Gibson. I just know there's enough of them to make me think, you know, there's a lot of smoke. There's probably some fire there, you know, but in any event... Let us roll up our sleeves. Let us roll up our kilts. Let us sharpen our spears. Let us storm the town magistrate and get vengeance for our fallen loves. Let us talk all things Braveheart. But before we do that, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so uh, if you want to get in touch with us, if you have anything to share, any suggestions for our future episodes, or you just want to say hi, uh, please reach out to us. We're on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we would love to hear from you. We always, always love hearing from our listeners. It's awesome. Uh, you can also head over to our website, midnightmyth.com. There's tons of extra content. There are blogs. There is a contact form if you want to leave us a lengthier note um, or you know share any insights you've gotten from our episodes. Again, we would love to hear from you. Also on the website, you'll find a link to our Patreon. Uh, that is a platform where you can support us for a low monthly donation. Uh, and that donation will get you perks such as shout outs on the pod or bonus episodes, discounts on merch, all kinds of stuff. 
You can also visit our merch store. There's a link to that on our website, midnightmyth.com, and grab your sweet, sweet Midnight Myth swag. The very best thing you can do for the podcast, however, costs you no money, just five minutes of your time. Head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us five stars and a review if you are so inclined. Uh, That really helps us reach new audiences. And we just, again, love to know that you're listening and love to know that you enjoy what you hear. Wonderful. Shall we start with a, well, usually it's the briefest of brief recaps, but this movie's freaking long. Listen, it's a three hour movie. So it may be not a briefest of brief recaps. So this movie starts with a young boy, William Wallace, a Scottish commoner who somehow owns his own lands and his father and brother die at the hands of fighting the British who are seizing control of the country of Scotland after the Scottish king dies without a successor. William Wallace then gets adopted by his uncle Argyle and as a boy travels to places like Rome and France where he learns languages and presumably learns military strategy. The movie begins with young man William Wallace returning to his village to rebuild his farm and hopefully plant crops and start a family. He quickly falls in love with the young and beautiful Mullen who... After getting assaulted by the English troops, William Wallace ends up coming to her aid, and they rough up some of the British soldiers who are occupying Scotland. This prompts the local sheriff to kill Mullen in the town square in the hopes to provoke William Wallace to attack. And oh, does he attack. William Wallace rallies the town, kills the local sheriff, and seizes control. This ends up sending a spark wave through the country, and forms a common insurrection, pardon me, a insurrection and rebellion of the commoners. This then culminates in the Battle of Stirling, where the Northern Army is being sent against William Wallace, and all of the commoners come from the highlands in tens of thousands to fight the British. The Battle of Stirling commences when the nobles that try to rally as well lose control of the army at the sight of the superior British force to which William Wallace rallies the troops. His strategy proves successful and they annihilate the British army and William Wallace is then named the High Protector of Scotland. We also see the story of Robert the Bruce happening simultaneously. He has the strongest claim to the Scottish crown, and he is working with the nobles, including his own father, who is decaying from leprosy. And they're trying to orchestrate by playing the nobles against each other, the commoners against the British, the British against the nobles, to find the best Machiavellian-style power play to get Robert the Bruce the crown at all costs. We also see life at the English courts, ruled by the cruel pagan Edward the Longshanks, more on that later because he was not a pagan, who is a ruthless king who has a presumably homosexual son that he marries to the princess of France, Isabella, in the hopes to expand English's territory in the, um, the country of France. Meanwhile, all of this is happening Wallace decides he's going to invade England because the nobles can't stand together, and he sacks the British city of York, cutting off the head of the king's nephew and sending it to the king. The king then decides he will then send the princess Isabella to try to buy Wallace off. He can't send his son because his son is a weakling. He can't send himself because he fears that Wallace may cut off his head. The princess comes and William Wallace and the princess strike up a romantic bond that eventually becomes a sexual relationship. 
So the princess is smuggling information about the king's movement to William Wallace. This is where that he learns that the English king has dispatched forces while he had dispatched the peace envoys to cut William Wallace off and annihilate him. With this uh, secret intelligence funneled to him through the Princess Isabella, Wallace goes back to Scotland with his army and tries to rally all of the nobles to finally have the ultimate battle with the British in which he can have a country of their own. Robert the Bruce unites with William Wallace in a handshake, but ultimately betrays him and does not rally to his cause. The Battle of Falkirk happens. William Wallace loses the battle and nearly gets killed, discovering that Robert the Bruce is fighting alongside Edward the Longshanks. He escapes with just an inch of his life and then starts again to rally the commoners against the British. While all of this is happening, Robert the Bruce has a change of heart and decides he wants to actually unite the nobles around Wallace and finally fight the British. However, the duplicitous Scottish nobles actually plant a trap. They capture William Wallace and the price of Robert the Bruce's crown is the nobles wanted Wallace dead and the English wanted Wallace dead. So they're united on their hatred of Wallace makes Robert the Bruce the king. However, he did not want Wallace to be captured. Wallace gets sent to London. He gets hung, disemboweled, mutilated, quartered, and executed. At the moment of his execution, when the English are trying to get him to beg for mercy, the last word he cries out is freedom. Freedom! The last scene of the movie has Robert the Bruce... King Robert the Bruce at this point, ready to get his crown endorsed by Edward the Longshanks. He's ready to give the country of Scotland officially to the English, but instead decides a surprise attack and the Scottish fighting as warrior poets win their freedom. Would you like a glass of water or... Well, that's a lot. Yeah. Did that make any sense? No, it, it was like very, very lucid. Um, like I can't, I couldn't remember any of that from the movie and I just watched it a few nights ago. I mean, um, I have seen the movie a million times. Oh, I forgot an important detail. Wallace and Isabella have sex and on Edward the Longshank's deathbed, when he had lost his powers of speech, she whispers that she is carrying Wallace's baby and that his son will not sit on the throne insinuating that the line of English kings will actually be uh, sired by William Wallace. That is quite the insinuation, Miss Isabella. Quite the insinuation about history indeed. Well done with the recap. I really admire you for that. So real quick, we've done this a lot. I'd like to do this. I've seen this movie a thousand times. You just watched it for the first time. Just give me your general impression. You'd obviously heard of it. You'd heard that it was a major blockbuster. It won, I don't know how many awards, including Best Picture. I believe Mel Gibson either won Best Actor or Best Director. I forget which. He might have won both even. What are your general impressions of this movie? Do you think this is a good movie? You know, I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. Uh, and I think part of that is my like general personal feelings about Mel Gibson. I kind of wanted to just like hate this uh, as a Mel, Mel Gibson movie. Um, but I really did have a great time watching it. I thought it was like just exquisitely produced. Just the first few images of, uh, you know, the Scottish countryside and the landscape and the just incredible cinematography blew me away. 
Um, I thought it was visually stunning. I thought the battle scenes were compelling in a way that like most battle scenes usually bore me in movies. And I was really, really invested. I loved overall, like the thing that really kept me going through this three hour movie was the characters. Um, I thought that Brendan Gleeson as Hamish was really powerful. Uh, seeing these sort of images of, uh, of, these big burly men who are also really sensitive and cry at the deaths of their fathers and have this like duty and honor about them that is contrasted with this uh, sort of rough and ready uh, sort of uh, aesthetic about them was really compelling. Uh, my favorite character was absolutely Stephen the Irishman and I cheered every time he came on screen. So I, I really did enjoy it. Um, and I, I, kind of enjoyed it in spite of myself. So I'm glad that we did this. Yeah, I I love that. It is without a doubt one of the most beautifully directed uh, movies I have ever seen. I think that still holds up incredibly well. Having learned a little bit more about how medieval battles actually were, I would say that the the medieval warfare in it is cinematically amazing. Yeah. Um, but that's not... Like, it, it portrays the battles as just pure chaos. However, medieval warfare was pretty well structured. There were really great generals who knew how to train their armies into coordinated movements. It wasn't just, like, guys with swords without shields running at each other screaming, though that did happen. So not as a historically accurate... Um, the battles that we see, in particular Sterling and Falkirk, the movie is nothing like how those battles actually were, which we will get to um, in our analysis. But yeah, all things being said, I think one of the best descriptions of Mel Gibson as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, this is going to sound crazy, it comes from South Park. Yep. And if you've seen <laughs> South Park and you've seen the Imagination Land three-part episode, there's a point where the government hires Mel Gibson to try to explain what's going on. And they say, and I will quote South Park, say what you want about Mel Gibson, but that son of a bitch knows story structure. <laughs> and I really think that's true. You know, it's funny because my my only like real pop culture touchstone for Braveheart is also from South Park. Uh, and it's in an early season one Thanksgiving episode. I believe it's Starvin' Marvin when the turkeys are rising up. Uh, and Chef uh, has to lead like a a war against the turkeys or a war with the turkeys. God, I used to like watch this episode all the time and remember it. And now I don't remember it that well. But he gives the Braveheart speech covered in blue woad. Uh, and then he he tells this story and he's like, every turkey dies. Not every turkey truly lives. And it's just really a fantastic, um, ridiculous early episode of South Park. I just think that's funny how much South Park comes into our, our conversation about Braveheart. But the uh, something that you started to hint at there, and let's be real, the spoiler alert, the fact of the show is Braveheart is not a historical document. Uh, it is a well-told story um, that, yes, you can probably throw, like, it's got some cliche to it, um, but a lot of those cliches are, like, so baked into us because of Braveheart, because Braveheart is such a huge uh, cultural moment, uh, but it is not a historical document. And I think something that we'll get to in a lot of our analysis is, yes, there are places where this diverges 
ridiculously from history. You know, I looked at you at one point when um, Isabella and William Wallace were starting to get into bed together. And I was like, this never happened. And Derek, you looked at me and you were like, well, babe, none of this movie ever happened. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's true. But the question at the heart of it is, okay, let's accept that. What is valuable about this piece of art? What is valuable about this piece of storytelling with its relationship to history? Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of history in this episode, just uh, forewarning everyone in case you had any doubt. Um, Yeah, I'd like to start with that thought in mind. The opening sort of phrase of this movie, which I think is a statement of theme of how we can relate to Braveheart and its relationship to history, comes from a voiceover with Robert the Bruce, and he says, and I'll paraphrase because I didn't write down the whole quote, the history, the historians in England will say I am a liar, but history was written by those who hanged heroes. And in this, we see a broader statement about how history is written through Robert the Bruce's character. And to break that down in simple, he's saying the British wrote the history of this. The victors wrote the history of this because ultimately, long-term, Scotland becomes a part of the United Kingdom of England, and they're going to call us liars because the British spent their time subjugating, killing us, and they their relationship to the facts is filtered through their political power, and that their political power is projecting a vision of history, and they're going to call us liars, but we're actually going to tell the truth. The truth cannot be told through the historians. And that's something that really raised my eyebrows. I'm like, oh, that's the first line of this movie. And I'm like, you know, when I first saw this, I was a young boy, um, barely a teenager, and I was intrigued by that notion. Now, having a degree in history, having studied history, continuing to read history books at my leisure post my college education, It raised my eyebrows. So I wanted to talk a little bit to ask ourselves uh, a real question. How was history written in the Middle Ages? If you study history on any college level, you will ultimately engage in what's called historiography. And it answers that question. How was the history written? So when you're engaging in historiography, you will ask questions such as, what type of language was the historian using? Where did they learn this particular style of prose? Um, How did they get to their sources? Who were their sources? Did the historian have a bias? Was the bias a personal prejudice? Was it institutionalized? For example, if you are reading the great Roman historian Livy, and you start to study Livy, you'll come to learn that part of what he was trying to do was craft a narrative to prop up Augustus, the first Roman emperor, So you look at everything that Livy has written from the lens of pro-Augustus-style history because he was currying favor with the first Roman emperor, almost trying to create it seemingly that it was predestined that Augustus would become the first Roman emperor and that was the greatest good of Roman society. Um, If you're looking to learn about the Middle Ages, there's and you're an Audible member, free plug to Audible here. And Audible, if you're listening, sponsor our show. Yeah, please. There is on the great courses in Audible, a fantastic three-part series on the Middle Ages through a professor day leader. 
I highly recommend this if you're looking to learn an overview of the three different eras of medieval history. They're fantastic. Those three eras are the early, the high, and the late. The High Middle Ages end around 1250 of the Common Era. Yeah, about the 11th to the 13th centuries. So we're looking at a period of time when Braveheart, when William Wallace lived in the late Middle Ages. So this would be the end period of the Middle Ages that will then usher us into the modern era. And how was history written then? And that's a question that I'd like to start with. History was written predominantly through chroniclers. A chronicler is typically a cleric because so few people were actually literate. Even now, in the transition between the high and the late Middle Ages is a period of time where literacy was on the rise. There are strong educational systems. There is the start of what's called humanistic philosophy is coming around, which means people are starting to investigate and interrogate the human condition. They're starting to wonder how to teach people. More people are being taught and there is more literacy happening. Those still incredibly rare. Most people were illiterate and the most common literate people were those who studied and went into the clergy. Not every chronicler is a clergy member, but most are. And a chronicler is someone that travels with historically worthy individuals. That's a loaded term. Someone that they think is doing history. For example, in the High Middle Ages, Richard the Lionheart is running the Second Crusade. There were chroniclers that traveled with him to write down everything that happened to keep it for posterity. If you've ever read any medieval chroniclers and you've ever read any modern history, there's almost no modern history to it at all in its historiographical nature. Most of the causes and consequence of events are attributed to divine symbols. The chronicler is looking for the ways in which God, the Holy Ghost, Jesus, or saints are interceding on behalf of the person they're chronicling, and they're trying to capture the most poetic spirit, and these are typically around very bloody events, such as crusades, such as wars. So those are the predominant historians of the high to the late Middle Ages. There wasn't what we have now. So what we have now is a professional historical class. We have people that go to college who study history to become professional historians. A chronicler, that's just one part of their broader career. In fact, this is true echoing back. Most of the history that we have from the ancient period through the, the medieval, was not written by a professional historian, but someone who had various professions and then decided they wanted to take up writing history. Now, just because there are chroniclers doesn't mean that's the only type of historical document produced. So what could else could be a historical document? Letters exchanged, in particular by people of power, such as kings and nobles, we're at a point now in the late Middle Ages where the noble class is educated predominantly and can read. That's not always true in medieval history, but it's starting to become true now through the, the process of humanistic education systems. Um, we have records from courts. We have legal documents. And, um, and then we have archaeological evidence. So from this loose net of sources... 
from agreed upon heavily biased chroniclers, we now can get a picture of what happened here in the Middle Ages. There are other types of historical documents too, because there are also people writing fictions. They're writing poetry. They're writing romances. Um, there's also a start at this period of people discoursing on things like philosophy. There's a reinvestigation and reinvigoration of the ancient classics. Yeah, you get scholasticism as a major uh, form of uh, investigating text as well. Yes, you have people at this point in time rereading the ancient Greek and Roman classics and doing so to engage. So people were always reading the ancient Roman and Greek classics, but they were typically doing it just to learn the language. So if you're in the early medieval period and you're studying Cicero, you're studying Cicero to learn Latin. Yeah. That's why you're studying Cicero. Now you're studying Cicero in the late Middle Ages to try to learn something about Cicero, to try to engage with Cicero. So we see this re-engagement in these classics, and all of these have produced documents, many of which have been destroyed, but many of which have been preserved. And from this, we get a historical picture of what happened in the late Middle Ages. Long story short, the notion that historians' history was written by those who hanged heroes is a fairly um, philosophically absurd statement. The chroniclers weren't doing any of the hangings, right? They might be witnessing the hangings, and they may be writing that the hangings happened, and they may be writing that the hangings happened because the people being hung were Saracens, a racist medieval term for Muslims, or maybe they were Jews, non-believers, maybe they were witches, or maybe they were traitors as they, the English viewed the Scottish. But they weren't the ones doing the hangings. Anyone who takes up a historical discipline, even one such as a medieval chronicler, does it from the purpose of trying to preserve knowledge from posterity. Prejudiced as though they may be, biased as they undoubtedly were, they still had a noble intention to give the next generation an account of affairs. They should not be discarded whole cloth in the way that Robert the Bruce suggests at the beginning of this movie. It starts with a historical pain in my heart, establishing a mythos, a romance around history that says, disregard the historians because they're liars. And that just cut me to the core. Yeah, well, it's it, the movie is in some ways telling on itself. It's like, don't take this as true history or uh, it, please ignore anything that uh, conflicts with what you have learned in actual history texts because I'm going to tell you something different and this is the real truth. Um, but there is absolutely this element of um, of enforcing that cliche of history being written by the victors. And I want to thank you for that overview of the sort of development of the historical class, how we came to have modern history, because I think that question of historiography uh, is going to be interesting when we examine what the actual source material, and I say that loosely with air quotes, source material for Braveheart is, because it's not from one of these chroniclers. It's not from someone who was a professional historian. So Braveheart is quite loosely based on the 15th century epic poem, 
the actus and deedus of the illustra and valiant campion Sir William Wallace, or simply the Wallace, by Blind Harry. And this is one of those fictions that you were talking about, one of those romances. Uh, so this is, uh, and I want to thank uh, Anna McKim, who wrote an introduction to the Wallace that I got a lot of really interesting information from because I'm sorry, we only had a week to do this. I was not going to read 11,000 lines in Middle English this week. But uh, this is a really fascinating uh, comparison to the kind of history that you're talking about because it is so not that. Uh, it's one of the earliest books printed in Scotland, but it was composed more than 150 years after the death of its subject. Wallace died in 1305, and the Wallace, the poem, was composed somewhere around the 1470s. So this is not a contemporaneous source. Now, while Blind Harry claims to have based this poem on the eyewitness account of John Blair, who was uh, Wallace's chaplain and would have been by his side, the truth is Harry is not actually working from that source. That source has never been found. This was a really typical practice of people who were writing pseudo-historical texts in the Middle Ages, uh, referring back to an original eyewitness account or an earlier source. That was uh, a way of establishing credibility, even if it took away from, uh, let's say, your own merits as a creative writer or as a historian. So it wasn't necessarily like uh, a desirable quality to be a great creative writer in the Middle Ages. Uh, you, you just wanted to be believable. You just wanted to be credible. So even if it seemed like you were just translating an older text or even plagiarizing an older text, and there was a very different attitude towards what we would now call plagiarism, you'd rather have uh, some attestation to what you were talking about than have it appear as though you were inventing something out of whole cloth. Uh, this is something that Geoffrey of Monmouth does as well with uh, the history of the kings of Britain, the uh, really blockbuster text that burst King Arthur onto the scene. He says, I have an old British text that I'm translating into Latin now for you, so you know this is legit, even though I'm writing it much, much later. Uh, but Harry's probable source for what he's actually writing is definitely not one of these historical eyewitness accounts. It's actually John Barber's 1375 verse biography of Robert the Bruce, the King of Scots, from 1306 to 1329. Harry's actually taking several of the Bruce's greatest deeds and assigning them to William Wallace while inventing others out of whole cloth. So a very, very interesting sort of uh, irony there that the Bruce plays such a small role uh, in, in Braveheart comparatively when he was actually posthumously the one given the title of Braveheart. So uh, already knowing what the source of this is, we know that there are some very serious historical uh, problems that we're working through. And the movie is based off of that epic poem. Yeah, loosely. For the most part, loosely. Yeah. And wasn't the epic poem, wasn't the intention, and stop me if I'm wrong, the intention was people were starting to forget who William Wallace was in Scotland, and they were trying to grow anti-English sentiment among the current Scottish people 
because England had at this point in time pretty much uh, adopted Scotland within the United Kingdom. Yeah, very interesting point that you're bringing up here. The poem, like we said, written during the 1470s when King James III is on the Scottish throne and he's engaged in a policy of reconciliation with the English king, Edward IV. So there is a policy of cooperation between the two nations, uh, one of which is essentially a vassal to the other. And Harry is being commissioned and patronized uh, at least this is the view of uh, the scholar Matthew P. McDiarmid, he's being patronized by Scottish magnates who oppose the pro-English policy. And this is another important thing, I think, to uh, examine with regard to history and arts in the Middle Ages is patronage. Uh, that's something that we always want to look to when we're investigating something that's being even used as a historical text, even if you acknowledge that it's not um, fully historical. You have to look for who's paying for this operation, who's funding this, uh, because literary patronage was, such a, was a common practice from the ancient world to the medieval world, and you'd receive this financial support from a wealthy member of the nobility. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to create this work or produce or print or distribute this work, and you'd have to write this work to please their interests. It's a political operation, uh, so Harry is probably getting this money, is probably being told to write this, not just to, you know, uh, curry this sort of nationalism for this person that he admires and wants to see uh, put among, like, Robin Hoods and King Arthur's and such. He's doing this because he's being paid by people who oppose the king's policy of reconciliation with England. Yep. In that respect, it is very much a propaganda effort to create a nationalistic, pro-Scottish, anti-British hero that will then help slow down the reconciliation between Scotland and England. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit in. I'd like to talk a little bit in depth, if you'll permit me, um, into the politics of the time that we know historically, and then how this movie engages in politics. Is that okay? Absolutely. The one thing that I want to mention before we move on is that it's important to keep in mind uh, that Harry is not just uh, trying to tell a historical account of William Wallace or tell a romanticized account of William Wallace's history. He's also incorporating elements of medieval folklore and romance, and he's clearly influenced by Chaucer and Arthurian texts like the alliterative Mort, Mort Arthur. Uh, so important to keep in mind how much folklore is part of what Harry is doing and that elements of Braveheart where uh, people will see William Wallace and say, no, William Wallace is seven feet tall. That's coming directly from Harry. So what one of the things he's trying to do is build up William Wallace as this like master of chivalry and courtesy, as this incredible national hero who is at the same level of uh, figures like King Arthur in Britain or Charlemagne and Roland in France. He thinks that William Wallace should be placed among those characters on the same pedestal. <laughs> 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because that also feeds into the politics of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very much so. So let me talk a little bit about feudal structure um, in order to kind of understand the politics of what happened that caused this rebellion in history um, in Scotland against the English and how this movie interacts with political philosophy. Is that right. cool? Yeah. So medieval uh, feudalism is a system by which there is a small land-owning elite class. We can call them nobles. Sometimes they're called castellans, whatever term you want to use, who own the land and the peasants work the land. The Lord is responsible to collect all taxes, and the Lord is also responsible for military aid to defend the, the territory to which they have lordship over. Now, ideally, every single castellan or lord has an oath of vassalage to a superior lord. So there is smaller lords and larger lords. And the lord paramounts, the king of all lords would be the king, presumably. So the structure is very stratified. And the idea is you have a strong central lord, a king, to which all the other lords owe allegiance to. In practice, this didn't always work. Strong kings were able to wield a central authority and bring their castellans to heel. Weaker kings struggled with this, and sometimes the lords did not uphold their oaths of vassalage. An oath of va vassalage to become a knight to serve a lord means that when called upon, you must fight for them and you are responsible for the taxes. That's it. England is unique in medieval history in that very early in the high Middle Ages, the period that predates where they're now, they form the Magna Carta. They have a constitution of sorts. They stratify and codify laws that make it one of the most functional medieval societies. It's one of the reasons medieval England is as powerful as it is, because it has laws and traditions so that when a lord does something right or wrong, you can take that lord to court and say, you didn't follow the law. Not every medieval society has such stratification and has their um, norms and morals codified into constitutions and laws. Because of this, med medieval England becomes one of the powerhouse states. And this is the formation of the nation state as we know it. While many parts, especially in the early and high Middle Ages, territory is waxing and waning because I give territory to my son. My son thinks, you know what? I don't want to owe vassalage to this person. Why? Because I'm in a castle and I have more troops than them. So when they need me to fight or they need me to pay a tax or they want me to follow a law that the king says, why should I have to follow that yeah, law? What, what are you going to do? <laughs> How are you going to stop me? And this is happening throughout all of medieval Europe. Strong monarchs can rail in their castellans. 
weak monarchs are usually run by them. And with that, the territories that they control waxes and wanes. This is how so many different languages develop in medieval Europe, because different places become highly regionalized, right? And this is why Latin becomes all of the different languages we see now. Medieval England, though, does stand unique in this. Scotland at this period in time that happens in actual history is a period in which they don't have a clear successor to the throne. The Scottish invite Edward I, called Edward the Longshanks in this movie. By the way, they call him a pagan. Total hogwash. Yeah, no. (laughs) There are no noble pagans at this point. There are some pagan traditions still happening. There are some people who think they're pagans. But for the most part, belief in Catholicism is supreme, right? Like, And to openly not be Catholic at this point in time means you're going to get tortured and killed. Well, and the movie never follows up on this. It calls him a cruel pagan in Robert the Bruce's narration. And then there is no actual, like pagan practice there's no like the character doesn't do anything that suggests that he is a pagan uh he just does things that suggest that he is cruel so i think it's just done to throw this uh particular slur on the character and once again lift up the the scots as the as the holy ones and it helps to like de-barbarianize them uh i hate like using that word but they are they are referred to by the english as uh, barbarians at times, and they have this kind of rough appearance. They're not as polished, uh, and they're kind of a ragtag team of ruffians. So uh, I think it it it's done to uh, say, okay, even though they're rustic, they are at least of the faith. Cor- correct. Yeah, I totally agree. And so in history, they invite Edward to come and you know mediate the dispute and decide who will be the king. There was Robert the Bruce, I forget the other other guy. Balliol. Yeah, are the two main claimants. Edward decides Balliol, but says, Balliol, you must swear an oath of vassalage to me. I am your paramount lord. And really, when they invited England to come do this dispute, Edward I was a very smart, very militaristic, and very um, power-hungry king, which is not to say that we should demonize him in, in history all great kings of that time were just like Edward. They wanted to expand their territory. They wanted to consolidate their control and they wanted to uh, enrich themselves and their country. And they did so through conquest. And there's two ways to conquer in the medieval world, militarily and through politics. Edward the first was good at both. He could do both. He could, you know, use political machinations to gain more territory. And if need be, he'd follow up with the sword. Yeah, he forged important marriage alliances. He had this, uh, or at least in the movie, they they show him saying, if we can't f- fight the Scots, we'll breed them out. There's kind of this this mix of strategy. Uh, it's Machiavellian strategy with the military strategy. Yeah, if you want a pop culture touch point, think of Lord Tywin. In Game of Thrones. Yeah. Lord Tywin has no problem putting heads on pikes. It's not because it's cruel. It's not because he's sadistic. It's because this is what he needs to do to secure power, and he's going to secure power through whatever means, in just the same way that Lord Tywin can deploy assassins as easily as he can deploy 100,000 men-at-arms. That's very much what, you know, Edward I was like. So this does not work out well. 
So the Scottish nobles don't like being subject to the king. The Scottish king ends up uh, losing his power and ends up getting imprisoned. This leaves yet another power vacuum there in Scotland. And at this point in time, Edward the Longshanks goes in and moves in with his military and says, listen, if you're going to oust the king that I put here, I'm going to conquer you by the sword. And he puts individual English lords in troll over the entire Scottish territory. This is what sparks the William Wallace Rebellion. They're rebelling against British troops occupying them. In the movie, it's a little different. The movie insinuates that the British have been ruthlessly militarily controlling Scotland for a long period of time. They weren't. It was only a matter of about two or three years where they had direct military occupation. But the movie engages in something else that I find interesting. It engages in modern self-determinative conceptions of political authority. It says that there is a clear boundary between what is Scottish and what is English, and that the purpose of that boundary is so that the people in power in Scotland can grant self-determination to the Scottish people. Big words there. It's modern in how the character William Wallace articulates freedom. He wants his people to be free and free in a modern sense. He wants them to have a, quote, country of their own. However, freedom as we know it today does not exist in the late Middle Ages. There is no discussion on self-determination. There's no challenge to the supremacy of a hierarchy society that has God at the top with either next to king or next to the church. There's debate whether the, the, the hierarchy of power goes God, church, king, or God, king, church. Oh, there's a big debate about that. Just Huge. look at Charlemagne. And there's also the start of a debate that says, wait a minute, don't we have individuals and shouldn't they be educated? There's a start of maybe we should be educating more people. Well, and then the Magna Carta is a huge start or a huge uh, manifestation of the, the question of property and individual rights. But again, it's very, very early. The seeds of what would grow into our modern form of freedom are being planted in this time. Yeah. But Mel Gibson's character, William Wallace, wields the rhetoric of freedom as if it's the French Revolution. And this is where the political philosophy of the movie becomes so historically absurd. The idea of Scots fighting for self-determinative liberalism in the late Middle Ages is ass-backwards. Yes, they are going to dislike having the British military occupy them. Yes, they did actually rebel. And yes, that rebellion ultimately kicked the British out. And, and But what it did was it put Robert the Bruce to be a king. And it was a what's called an absolute monarchy. Britain is not an absolute monarchy at this point. The difference is absolute monarchy is where the king reigns with zero checks to their authority. The king is, word is law. Britain has the Magna Carta, which says the king is bound to the laws. The king is not above the law. And the difference between that and absolute monarchy, the king is law. This is not a society that's free. 
There is a point in which there is a peasant at the Battle of Sterling that says, I didn't fight so they could own more lands. I will just have to work for those lands. What do you think the peasants are already doing? Right. They don't own their own <laughs> lands. They're already working for their lands. You know? So it's like, this is just like so politically backwards. But as historically absurd that it is, it takes the modern conception of self-determinative liberalism, puts it in a medieval setting, and this gives us the ability to connect to William Wallace's character to believe that when William Wallace is chopping off heads and cutting throats and burning people alive, that he is not a medieval. You said the word barbarian. He says it, I am a savage. He says that, he says it in Latin when he meets um, Princess Isabella. This allows us to have a permission structure to his savagery so that we aren't repulsed by his conquest, by his ruthlessness. His ruthlessness is serving the cause of freedom. And now we're like, okay. And in that way, it's brilliantly written. Yeah. Well, and and this is taking some cues from Blind Harry as well, from the Wallace. So uh, the poem depicts the English as tyrannical, brutal villains who have provoked righteous anger from Wallace and the Scots from the very beginning. Uh, it is positioning the Scots as the uh, noble heroes who are just fighting, who are just violent because they have been so wronged for so long. These these two nations are natural enemies, if you will. So it's definitely taking those cues from that source material in a way. But what I think is really interesting about what you're articulating here is that, yes, we could sit here all day and say, okay, this movie has some like crazy anachronisms, like that kilts weren't invented by the time this movie uh, takes place, but everybody in the movie is wearing a kilt. Um, the, uh, the warriors are painting themselves with blue woad, which is not something that Christian Scots would have done. It's something that pagan Picts who originally inhabited the Scottish lands would have done. And it's kind of a crazy idea for, uh, characters who, who are apparently anti-pagan to do. And that Princess Isabella was like nine years old at the time this meeting with William Wallace is set to occur in the movie. So like we could sit here and just just enumerate those anachronisms all day. The Battle of Stirling happened on a bridge. Happened it was a, a surprise attack. It isn't until the Battle of Falkirk where the Scots actually use the pikes that we see at the Battle of Stirling to try to fend off the cavalry, which, by the way, did not permanently work. Eventually, they got ridden down by the cavalry. Go on and on yeah. and on. So we could go on and on and on with these anachronisms and these like crazy, just like outright historical inaccuracies. But what is really at the heart of this is that, uh, and the like, big historical question and sticking point here is that there is a modern political philosophy being articulated through the, the high and late Middle Ages. And I think that is what is, is most interesting to me here. It's not just saying, okay, here's what's uh, like concretely historically inaccurate. It's like, how and why did we use a story from the late 13th century to try and articulate uh, a very, very modern political idea. Uh, these uh, really nebulous notions of freedom and individual liberty and self-determination uh, that don't belong in that time period. Why are they being uh, articulated through that time period? And I think that is like 
the ultimate question of like, what's the deal with Braveheart? <laughs> and uh, I think you identifying that tension and that um, that weird opposition, that weird uh, sort of uh, historical dissonance is actually really valuable and something that uh, something that really gets my gears turning. Yeah, historically absurd, but poetically brilliant. Yeah. And it's part of the, the, the puzzle of why this movie caught fire of all places in America. It, yeah. It caught fire because... William Wallace is making an American argument yeah. against British oppression. Does that sound like any American historical event? Yeah, the American Revolution, the fight for, for freedom to be able to say, this is my country, you don't get to control it from afar, and we will patriotically sacrifice our, our blood, sweat, and treasure in order to, to gain that sovereignty and William Wallace's struggle for a nationalistic, anti-British, sovereign Scotland maps onto the rebellion that started with a bunch of Americans throwing tea in a harbor in the 18th century. Yeah, no, you're you're spot on. This is this is more about the American Revolution than it is about William Wallace. And of course, Mel Gibson would go on to make a literal movie about the American revolution that was considerably less critically successful. Um, but you're talking about the Patriot the Patriot. Um, but, but I think you're right. There are, there were so many moments when watching this where I was like, I'm watching a very, very American movie. This reminds me so much of the American revolution. Um, and uh, you know, is that, is that a terrible thing? Like, okay, maybe Scottish history really, really gets a short shake from this, but I am kind of, uh, I am learning something from these themes. I am like gaining some value from the theme. There is a dangerous um, militarized myth propagated in Braveheart, and it's also propagated in The Patriot. Both share this myth, and it's something that, if you study American military history is talked about a lot, and that's called the myth of the militia. Now this pertains particular to American history. There was a belief in America that armed citizens are enough to defend the nation. If there is a surprise attack or a war and you don't need a professionally trained army, the movie, the Patriot is a hundred percent about that. In a roundabout way, the movie of Braveheart is kind of about that. William Wallace is a commoner. His insurrection is an insurrection of commoners. The strategy of the commoners ends up defeating the, um, the trained, highly efficient British outnumbered military. It's about commoners, e.g. armed citizens, e.g. a militia of sorts, defeating the professionally trained army. And the problem with that historically is that it's not accurate and never was. So the movie The Patriot is about the Battle of Cowpens, in which there were militia, but it was predominantly won by the trained American Revolutionary Professional Army. And William Wallace was not a commoner in history. He had official, he was a minor noble. Um, and based upon that, it's reasonable, reasonable to assume he was trained in the proficient in the arts of warfare and the battles won and lost in the Scottish Rebellion were won and lost by their actual army. 
And William Wallace, one named High Protector of Scotland, was essentially named Commander-in-Chief of their army. Yeah. And commanded the army. It was not an army of just common commoners who took up arms with sticks and twigs, who didn't know armor, who didn't know military formations, who had no formal training in military or war. That's just totally inaccurate. And one of the problems with the military, um, the myth of the militia in America and how he maps that myth into the Scottish rebellion is that it leads to the worship of the second amendment. I was just going to say that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And America used to have citizen militias that got nationalized into our federal armed forces in the national guard. The national guard is now controlled by the Pentagon. Um, and that were the militias. So they've, they've more formalized those. And so it leads to the idea that you have to have every citizen armed to the teeth so they can be called upon. And in reality, every major American conflict that's been won or lost has been won or lost by our professional trained army. And we have one of the best professional trained armies in the world. And there is a danger in propagating historical myths through historical fiction, though it might be great drama, though it might be edge of your seat entertainment. When these myths get weaponized for lack of a better term by a Hollywood filmmaker, when a Hollywood filmmaker gets attached to the myth of history and makes movies that propagate and prop up that myth, it ends up reinforcing potentially problematic politics in the now and the politics in the now for America is worship of the second amendment. And I'm going to say this, you know, Laurel is very anti-gun, but if I wasn't married to you as an American, I'd probably own a gun. I'm not anti-gun, you know, I'm not whole cloth, like ban the second amendment, but I don't worship it and nor should any American. And you believe in common sense gun laws and background checks and uh, of course. Yeah. I believe in standards yeah, for public very, health. Very reasonable. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's, that is fascinating and a really, really good point to bring up and not something that I had really thought about. And then it just kind of like went off like a light bulb in my head. So that's really, really, um, really well said. Now the, the Patriot is much more, that movie is much more problematic about the, the militia myth of America. It's actually making propaganda around the militia myth. Yeah. With Braveheart, it's a much more roundabout way. Yeah, but you can absolutely see that. You can see the line. You can see the connection. Um, and this is not to say common people can't rally against oppression. No, of but course. if they're going to defeat one of the finest militaries in the world, eventually they need a professional army to do so. This is true of the Scottish Rebellion as it's true of the American Revolution. Yeah. Uh, you know, another aspect of this movie that I think uh, is really engaging in a very modern political debate uh, is in the relationship between uh, William Wallace and Robert the Bruce, which I do find one of the more compelling aspects of the film. I think it's a really dynamic relationship, one that has uh, echoes throughout so many other things I've seen. Like uh, I mentioned to you at one point in the movie, they kind of remind me of 
uh, a twisted sort of Aragorn Boromir dynamic uh, from the Lord of the Rings. We've got the reluctant king and the one who would serve and would be loyal to that king, but one of them is perceived more nobly than the other. So the roles are kind of reversed, but it was just an interesting relationship between these two men as these two um, opposing ideas of what leadership looks like. One is the brash, you know, blue-painted, kilt-wearing leader on the field who rallies you with this incredible speech and isn't isn't afraid to go and pick a fight even when negotiation is on the table and is available for you. And then the other is a very political, um, very savvy, uh, and uh, generally wants to do the right thing, but wants to do that through the established channels, not through rebellion. These two characters represent some things that really resonated with me uh, today. Uh, and there was a really interesting quote from Robert the Bruce's father in the movie when he is talking to him about how much he admires William Wallace. His father says, uncompromising men are easy to admire. Uh, and then he says something like, but the ability to compromise makes a man noble. And Obviously, the, the character of Robert the Bruce's father is not portrayed in a particularly good light because he leads to, you know, Robert the Bruce's betrayal, which ugh, broke my heart. Don't bring me down, Bruce. Um, but <laughs> but it's still, I thought, was a really fascinating uh, thing to say and something that really made me think about contemporary political debate, how we think about compromise, how we think about politics and revolution, uh, just something that really, really uh, got got me going. I love that very much. I totally agree. Can I pivot to a question? Yeah. And to me, this is the $64,000 question. Okay. Here. I really want to talk about this, and I don't know where I'm going to land. Usually when I come up with a big point, I have an idea where I'm going, but I'm still very much on the fence on this question here. We have a piece of historical fiction that gets nearly every historical detail wrong. Nearly every. We've discussed how it engages in some mythology creation that can even at times be considered problematic to our own era. And we've discussed some of the beauty of how it interjects modern politics to the medieval that makes the movie better. What is, if any, the historical value to the movie Braveheart? Uh, I mean, this uh, is the $64,000 question. I'm going to start by um, uh, sharing some thoughts that we got from uh, a listener on Twitter, uh, because I posted something about uh, how we were doing Braveheart, and I said, historical fiction, what is it good for? Uh, and our friends over at Dream Swarm had some answers for us, and this was from Andy Mark Simpson, who said, some think it is for entertainment and to hell with everything else. Another view is as a brochure for tourism. See also British heritage cinema, i.e. Jane Austen. And thirdly, that it can be used as a prism for understanding today's events and making a comment on the modern world too. So thanks, Andy, for like basically answering that question in every possible way. Because this movie, for me, in the first five minutes, I was like, I want to go to there. Can we go to the Scottish Highlands once we're allowed to travel again? Um, and also like, wow, this is hella entertaining. But I think um, at, at the core, historical fiction writ large and Braveheart especially is telling me a lot more about right now than it is telling me about the time it's looking at. And I think that's true about uh, the poem, The Wallace. 
I think that poem tells me a hell of a lot more about the 1470s than it tells me about the 1280s. I think that Braveheart tells me more about 1995 than it tells me about the 1280s. Wow. Um, yeah, and and I think it it tells me a lot about right now this moment. Uh, and I think you know I, I think we can apply that to a lot of historical fiction. I think Hamilton tells me a lot about what it's like to live in the 2010s and the 2020s, um, while also playing pretty fast and loose with the reality of what the American Revolution looked like. Okay, that's a can of worms there. I'm going to just pretend you yeah, didn't say that because yeah. I could. I've got a lot of thoughts on that one. Yeah. Um, well, I, I appreciate every point that you brought up, and I appreciate uh, the Twitter thoughts as well. I am torn on this. On one hand, when Hollywood engages on a historical level, it has the capacity to define an era in the eyes of many people. And in that respect, it has a responsibility, granted, not as high of a responsibility as to tell a good story and make a good movie, Yeah. but it has some level of responsibility to be like, we can't just bastardize the history. We've got to do some sort of historical justice yeah. to it. Um, and in that respect, if, if you are doing a historical fiction and you have some responsibility to, to do any historical justice, Braveheart failed that responsibility yeah. miserably. On the other hand, how many people know William Wallace's name because of this? How many people such as myself saw this movie and decided they wanted to learn more about medieval history and went on a journey of historical discovery that led them to places they never even thought they'd go myself. I never thought I would come to totally just be enthralled by ancient Roman history. And and that is the intellectual passion of my life is to understand and engage in Roman history. And Braveheart is part of the direction piece that pointed me there. Yeah, because it helped get you to Gladiator, and Gladiator really got you there, right? Cinema yeah. and historical fiction are a huge motivation for me to want to learn history and for me to become the person that I'm known as. And no more than anything else these days when people are like, hey, what is Derek passionate about? People say history, first and foremost. Yeah. Um, more so than anything else. And... I wouldn't be there if Braveheart didn't exist in my life. So on a certain hand, I can say despite its abject failures to be responsible with the history, it has personally inspired me. There's got to be others like me that have been inspired as well. And so doesn't this do a net good to history? After all, how many medieval historical names, concepts, people, myths, come from a historically disingenuous document. Almost everything we know about Norse mythology. Everything we know right now about William Wallace. Just about everything we know about King Arthur come from documents that were written in the medieval times that did not care about historical truth, did not try to establish any historical veracity that are deeply influenced by things like patronage and bias and uh, trying to establish credibility, even if they're making up sources and inventing national sentiment, inventing politics, yeah, yeah. inventing things that needed to be invented for the modern world to exist. So how much of this period of time is based on that already? 
what's the damage? What's the problem if Mel Gibson does the same? If he tells modern politics through a medieval vessel, what's the damage? And the damage is there are probably millions of people who think Mel Gibson's William Wallace was history, who think that there's, you know, William Wallace bled in the line of medieval English right. monarchies. And I just don't know where I land on this. Most history buffs, in particular medieval history buffs, despise this movie. Yeah. It is more common than not in the historical community for people to be like, even if they're like, okay, I am entertained by this movie, but man, is it is it problematic. Well, and and the damage that it's doing is not just that it's ahistorical, uh, you know, something that we haven't really brought up or done a whole lot of justice to in this conversation is that it is rightfully accused of anglophobia. Like it is propagandistic and it's uh, it, it says that the English are tyrannical villains and the actual like uh, the actual history tells a, a very different story of the relationships between these monarchs. Yes, there was brutality. Yes, there was villainy. Yes, there was uh, Machiavellian strategy, but the actual history is a lot more nuanced than that. Um, so I, I think it's, it's important to again, call out here at the end of this episode, like this, this movie is, is hating on the English in a way that is like really dangerous. Yeah. There are no successful medieval rulers, whether they be Kings or minor Castellans who didn't rape, kill and pillage hundred percent of them. Yeah. It's horrible. hundred percent of horrible them. time. It is a time in which the way to secure your power was through military means, suppressing your enemies, doing things like going on crusades, um, expanding your power and territory through advantageous marriages, and the standard crime and punishment that we see in this movie is the most historically accurate part. If you were a criminal, you were usually publicly tortured and killed and mutilated. That's... And what happened to William Wallace at the end of this movie is pretty accurate to what happened to the man as far as we know. Yeah, it's actually tamed down a little bit. (laughs) It's actually a little more gruesome because they did more horrible torture to it. This is a period of time in which torture, war, there are no rights, there are no, um, you know, commoners were not treated well. You know, this is a period of time in which, you know, Shortly before this, there was a crusade in which German crusaders went into Jewish communities and forced baptized them all into Christianity. And those that refused were just killed and slaughtered. Women were raped. Like this is a dark period of our history. So to make the British worse than others is historically disingenuous. Yeah. And to invent things like prima nocta uh, just to make them seem more barbaric is just like... Do is this really necessary? Yeah, I mean, in the Mel Gibson does not like the British. He does not like the British. I mean, the British that he has in the Patriot. That's another movie I could go on about. I already have a little bit. So, long story short, I just don't know where I stand on the historical validity of this movie. Personal experience, good. Broader meditations, bad. Yeah, 
good movie, uh, bad history. Uh, and you know, we're, we're not here to close the book on Braveheart because this is a movie that will inspire continual discussions among us. Uh, hopefully, uh, you'll have some things to share with us. You'll have some thoughts and historians and movie lovers. It will continue to, to spark these debates. And I, I've had a great time discussing this. I thought this was really fascinating. I learned a lot um, and I'm, I'm glad we, I'm glad we did this. Me too. I love historical fiction. I wouldn't love history without historical fiction. I'd love for every one of us that listens or every one of you, part of me that listens, give us your thoughts on Braveheart. We'd love to hear them. And until next time, they may take our lives, but they may never take our freedom. Be kind. Be kind. <laughs> <laughs>